It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human at work. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or Die. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode nine of AI or Die. I should have gotten this episode number right, episode nine. Um, it's been a while. We're happy to be back. Uh, we have a lot to talk about in today's episode. Um, as usual, we're going to go through a warm up. What's going on in our lives? What's new? We're going to talk about a lot of the news and trends, especially today. We're going to focus on um, a lot of the stuff that's happened since our last episode with a bit of a security twist as well, because later in the episode, we're going to have uh, Jason Montgomery join from Antium and talk through stuff he's working on and really stuff he's finding interesting to related to. Um, a recent white paper that he's put out, and, and just a lot of the exciting things that Mandium's working on too. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is AI or Die. Uh, starting with what is going on in our lives. Um, Reagan, I know you've been going and doing a bit of a traveling recently too. I want to toss it over to you to talk about some of the speaking engagements you've been doing, what those topics were, along with what else is going on in your life. It's fall, it's October, what you got going on? Yeah, I was trying to think back. I, I mentioned before this that it's been, I think, two months since we've recorded yeah, an episode. So it's just been a lot. We have yeah. been busy. It has been nuts. Um, and if any of you are on LinkedIn, I my apologies. I am just like <laughs> posting what's <laughs> <Yeah. Right? laughs> Um, however, I have been going to a lot of really interesting events. I think this is a really neat year to travel and go to events because there's so much happening. Like normally there's like a few kind of interesting things here and there, but like every event I go to, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. So I'm like learning something super interesting and I feel like staying on top of stuff and meeting really, really neat people. Um, I was in New York, I think like four weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. Um, for the Data IQ Summit, I think it was three weeks ago. And that was really interesting. Uh, it was a really fascinating time to be there. They announced their LLM mesh, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but that was just really cool to see all the vendors in the ecosystem for Data IQ and how much, uh, how well they're doing, honestly, and what they're innovating towards with LLMs. They're moving very, very, very fast to support enterprise um, in this like generative AI you know, journey. So that's been really neat to see. I was just in San Francisco last week at the Product Leader Summit, which was really fun. Um, that's put on by um, Ha and and Dan Olson, um, the Lean Product Playbook guy, who, you know, is somewhat of an icon. <laughs> okay. um, and that was a really fun event. Um, I got to do a workshop there around AI for incorporating AI into your product strategy. So I didn't want to say like AI strategy because I think about AI as being a piece of an overall strategy that a company has. And there was just a lot of really good diversity in the audience, like some people who have been, you know, ahead of the curve and some people who haven't really started. And so it was just really interesting to hear what people were doing, what they saw working, what they saw not working. I talked about risk management frameworks and how to identify good use cases and how to go from pilot to production. And so that was, that was really, really fun. So yeah, I've been on the road quite a bit uh, and back in New York next week. So it doesn't stop. I feel for you. It's energizing, of course, to like be around those conversations and those topics, but not only attending these events, but then speaking and running workshops on them too. It's, it's a lot. And so, so props for getting out there and doing a lot of that. It sounds like super fascinating conversations. Yeah. So 
anything else going on, you know, personally in the Reagan household, just related to fall time? I like to do a little icebreaker in terms of like, what's your favorite fall time activity that you like to get into just for listeners at home? Oh yeah. Fall's my favorite, especially in our house. Cause it's like a cute little cottage. Um, we did dress up for Halloween this, uh, past weekend. I was a cyborg in honor of, you know, AI being fun and, and popular this year. <laughs> yeah. We both were cyborgs. So <laughs> it was great. I got to wear like blue contacts and I looked kind of crazy. So it was fun. It's cool. Um, Keel and I, my wife, for the listeners, we are, um, boy scout, girl scout, but something went wrong. So we had fun with like the fake blood and the makeup and all that too. Um, well, good to hear. Good to hear. Um, Brendan, want to talk to you. What's going on in your life? Any things that have come up around fall for you or just like interesting tidbits that you found over the past couple of months since our last episode? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, fall by the beach here. So we're I got a paddleboard. So I've been going out and paddleboarding in the morning, starting to get less touristy because kind of like the shoulder nice. season, as we used to yeah. call it in the mountains. So um, less folks on the beach, which is nice, less tourists. Um, and everybody here is not used to being cold. So I'm still walking around in shorts and sandals. Everybody else is starting to wear like jackets. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is not nearly even close to jacket season. Look how sunburned I am. Obviously, it's not jacket <laughs> season. Um, but yeah, other than that, work-wise, just been really focused on building out our product, a lot of fun design, discovery conversations around what we're building, working with the engineers and the designers has been a lot of fun. So very exciting times as we're getting that out into the world and having people to use it. So it's been very exciting and fun. Yeah. Speaking of product, everybody, since our last podcast episode, we actually went live with our first public wait list. If you want to try out the platform that we've been working on, the platform that Reagan, Brent, and I have been talking about on these episodes, go to getalinei.com, check it out. There's a form you fill out to join our wait list. We'd love to have you. So come and check it out. We opened that up when you already had a ton of folks sign up too. So very, very exciting times at Alinei in the product space too. Um, for me in Ohio, it's peak week for fall colors. So it is actually officially cold. Like I turned the heat on, finally made that transition here too. So Fall is very short. It's a short, beautiful window here in Ohio, and it's about to end. So we're going to get out and probably go and look at the leaves. Um, I also did my own kind of more local rounds of speaking. So the University of Cincinnati, they have something called the Center for Business Analytics. So like local companies partner with University of Cincinnati, and they basically put on this thing called the Data Science Symposium. So they have two big events, Data Science Symposium in the fall and Analytics Summit in the springtime. Um, had a chance to speak at the symposium, really focused on quantifying the value of AI in your organization, thinking about the impact, thinking about the adoption, a lot of inherently like product, you know, topics within that talk to Reg. And so a lot of crossover there too, but ran a workshop there. Always love having the conversations with folks coming up afterwards, just talking about their own situation and their work too. So that was a good one. I also spoke at um, the DAMA, Data Management Buckeye chapter. So spoke to them about just foundations. So a while back, Reagan and I did kind of an AI foundations talk for security professionals. This was really an AI foundations talk for data management professionals. Key considerations like how to understand how models work, what is a MML model, and then what is the role of AI and data management and a lot of the data management tools that are coming out too. So that was a blast. Again, love getting out there. I love doing these talks. They're also stressful. I hate doing public speaking. Um, happy to do these in the future, but it always... It's always something I got to get used to in that last like 30 seconds before going on stage too. Um, so that was good. I think it's, I, I used to hate it forever. I'm getting, I'm hating it less. I won't say that I like it or love it, but I'm hating it less. Yeah. Um, we didn't get to talk about the security workshop we did 
with Rencon. So we had a big press release about our partnership with Rencon, which is a security education company. Um, we think it's really, really important to have a talk track and have education and have functionality for security teams because that is one of the top uh, conversations that's happening over and over again. It's risk management and security nonstop. I think people are, A, afraid of what they don't know. So when a new technology comes about, security teams want to be educated on that, which is very timely because we're having Jason on today from Mantium, which is a security company for AI. Um, so we'll get to dive into some of the nuances and technical details with him. Um, but super exciting. Um, we had a bunch of uh, chief information security officers attend and a ton of um, security professionals attend as well. And we kind of dove into, we did like a, almost a full day workshop. We had a four hour preview into one of our courses for security professionals, as well as a panel discussion with security professionals about what their companies are doing, um, both on the usage side, but also on the building side. Like when we build these LLM architectures, what do we want to look out for? Um, and so that was a really fun workshop. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just so interesting to see how some of these systems can be manipulated um, and how people can, again, you know, exploit them. And so, like I said, we'll, we'll dive into the details of that for anybody who's super interested. That's today's topic. Uh, but yeah, we haven't talked since we had that workshop. So seriously, and that was so much fun. Just to, like do a talk with Reagan, like collab on on a topic like that as well. And then just the conversation, even in my Dama talk, security vulnerabilities were top of mind for a lot of these folks too. So that seems like really kind of the the top of mind that a lot of even non-security professionals have around how are a lot of these generative AI solutions being introduced in my org also bring in vulnerabilities and things that I should worry about too. Okay, so with that, that's what's going on in our lives. Um, let's get into the news. And I, one of those interesting articles that you shared, Reagan, which was like senators releasing bipartisan framework for AI legislation. So a couple of bullet points there is like, let's set up basically a licensing regime administered by an independent oversight body. Let's ensure there are legal accountability for harms. Let's defend national security, international competition. Let's promote transparency, especially on the builders of these models. And then ultimately protect consumers and kids. Like those are the high level bullet points, but curious what you found interesting just from that article and reading through it. Yeah, I think um, one of the materials I saw released around this, which by the way, it was just an initial release, yeah. um, just kind of talking about what they wanted to cover in this AI act in the US, which again, we are trailing, I think a little bit behind the EU in this, well, not a little bit, a decent amount. <laughs> um, but I think what's interesting is like, when we talk about this landscape of large language models, there's a couple, there's usually like an uh, architecture diagram that I show, which shows like where you are in this landscape. So you've got people who are building the foundation models that we've talked about a ton, which is really a super expensive task um, or can be, especially the, the very, very large ones that the big players are building. And there's also a pretty significant open source community coming out uh, that's producing more and more of these foundation models. So you could be on that side. The other side of this coin is like leveraging that and fine tuning them or leveraging them in your own architecture where you're not building the foundation models yourselves, but you're a company that's leveraging these foundation models. And, um, and then there's kind of another bucket, which is the consumer or the end user of these applications that's interfacing with these models through some sort of ap application layer. And so when we think about all of those kind of like layers, 
Um, I think a lot of the AI Act covered the companies that are building these foundation models, but the risk actually happens the further up the stack you go to the application layer. Mm -hmm. So this is the actual implication outcome. I always talk about um, outcomes and actions. So the outcome from these systems, the outcome from these models, and then the actions that that drives, that's where the risk actually comes to life. The, the, uh, the theoretical risk is before that. And so that's the hard thing about AI is that we build these things, but it's really in the usage of those things where the risk happens. Right. And so when I think about licensing, like, are they going to make these, you know, producers of the foundation models provide certain licenses of things? And there's things they can do at that point too, like removing toxicity, removing bias, yeah. things like that, right? That That is important as a foundation. But as we move up in the ranks, are companies like, banks or insurance companies or manufacturing companies, do they have to go through this process of licensing any application or anything that they do to tweak or build on top of these foundation models? And I saw somewhere that they are also going to be requiring economic and, and employment um, effects that these models have. And so where does that happen? Like at the foundation level, we don't know. But as you move up into the application layers, when that starts to happen. So I'm having conversations with our customers on like, you know, what sort of implication does this have on our company? We're not building foundation models. So I think that gets a little confusing. And I feel like we should be more clear about where the implications are and where the risks are and how that's being managed by policy or being, or there are preventative measures happening from a policy perspective. So I know that was a lot, but like, I, that's the way that I've been thinking about it. That's the way I've been talking about it. Because when we talk about policy, each of those layers matters. And if we're protecting consumers, that's all the way at the top of the layer. If we're trying to be proactive, we need to touch every other piece until it hits the consumer. Are you arguing that it should be more clear from the government standpoint in terms of the regulations that they're putting out? Or just should be clear across the board of folks who are touching these models, creating them and putting them out there? Should be clear on who these policies impact. Mm -hmm. Like if I am building the foundation models myself or not, or if I'm using it from the open source community, how are they gonna how are they gonna control it from an open source perspective? You know, I think there's like a lot of different areas that we need to be maybe more clear on. And when we're talking about economic and employment impact, that's at the use case level, right? Really. So how are we going to measure and monitor those types of things? And how are we going to prepare these companies to set up reporting like that? I mean, they definitely don't do that today, at least not well. And what solutions need to come to market to support that too? Brendan, interested in your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting because I think <clears throat> it's such a tricky thing to regulate, defining compliance around because the only the most close parallel I can think of is like the internet, right? And that was like by design, hard to regulate. AI is very different because there is still a very strong open source community. However, there are these foundational model players that are bringing really the things that move it forward because they are so expensive to build. Like open source will struggle to keep up with how much money is running behind a lot of these open uh, or these that closed source, if you will, foundational models. So I think it will become interesting, like where does the onus lie? Because you're bringing them into the market, you're introducing a lot of the opportunity for the risk. But then again, that model without an interface on top of it, especially in the enterprise arena, right? Like there needs to be applied to a use case. It needs to be brought into that organization. So who's that risk really fall on? Probably the person that's bringing into that organization, right? 
Um, but again, I think it's just such a tricky thing to define regulation for because of what we do now is going to affect what it looks like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And we know how fast AI is moving, that that is going to be really hard to define something that will last over that crazy curve that we're on right now of what it will look like in 20, 30 years, you know? So it's a daunting task is my summary. <laughs> yeah. And I'd say to regulate, like, I don't know, there's two different types of regulation. You can regulate on outcome or you can regulate on process. And so I think, and maybe that, that's not a comprehensive, you know, view of that, but those are the two top ones that come to mind for me. And when we think about process, that process is also changing rapidly. Like Polly Allen, who was also at the Product Leader Summit last week, did an entire workshop on defining your moonshot goals with generative AI, because she's like, what you think is revolutionary becomes totally commoditized pretty much in like a matter of couple, a couple of months. Like you work really, really hard to build this functionality and then the market catches up and has that functionality readily available for other people to build on top of. And so everything underneath is just like rapidly developing and, and you know, maturing. And so how much do we want to invest in something innovative and what do we consider to be innovative in the generative AI space over time? What is a moonshot idea versus these incremental improvements at this point? And I think regulation also needs to take that in consideration because if we're regulating how these things are built, well, that's also changing rapidly. So are we going to be able to iterate on that or are we just looking at outcome? And I think like most is starting at outcome because that is not changing as much, right? Because we know what we don't want to have happen. Um, and so we can kind of work from there, but yeah, it'll be really interesting. I always, there's a really good parallel that I keep hearing with kind of the FDA and how, how approvals get done through the FDA, um, and that being kind of synonymous to, to this process as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting, you know, evolution. I think it'll be an interesting evolution. And then to your point, are we going to start signing like agreements as users inside of you know, our business using a model saying like, I agree to not use this in this way. And we've gotten used to it from a data privacy standpoint with any terms of agreement whenever we get a software update. But I'm just curious as to like tangibly, how will that turn into a process change as a consumer? And then on the producer side, are they gonna have to wait to get things approved like through the FDA before they can continue progress on the model? Like they're waiting for it to get essentially versioned. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I think it was such a good call out that they explicitly stated that they want to promote innovation and competitiveness and national and, and national security, which all of those things are good incentives to being over-regulated. But you know, the this market loves regulation because you can you can always sell towards regulation because companies are required to do those things. So we need to have counter incentives like what was listed. So I was happy to see that stuff there too. Well, the thing that jumped out to me in this article is it's noting there should be export controls and sanctions and restrictions to limit the transfer of advanced not models to other countries that they deem is not the right place to go. How the heck do you control that with sharing software? I get it in terms of hard goods and hardware, but how do you even get your arms around like defending national security with software that's shared so inherently easy or built off of like open source, like hugging, hugging face, like foundational models too? Yeah, it'll be an interesting progression. Maybe that's something we can poke Jason about. <laughs> cool. cool. So that was a good one. Also in the news, this is kind of a good feel-good story related to an AI competition that's happening. Um, 
AI essentially revealed, or a student built a model to reveal the first word on an ancient scroll torched by Mount Vesuvius. So this is a pretty popular story that's out there. Essentially, they had a competition called the Vesuvius Challenge, where there's these ancient scrolls that have been charred and illegible for, for hundreds of years since we found them. Finally, there's been a breakthrough where we can at least identify one word from the scroll as purple, which on the surface isn't that fascinating, but the implications related to if we can get one word, can we keep training the model to get more words and essentially, you know, transcribe all of the ancient scrolls we haven't been able to in the past too. So that's very exciting. And it's a very cool way to think about how AI is going to have an impact on archaeology and just going back through all of the texts and any of the things that we've unearthed over time and essentially speeding up our ability to transcribe them, turn them into English language and, and understand what that means. Yeah, I've actually been digging more into like history just out of like general interests. And I'm like, man, AI is going to be great for this because all historians kind of specialize in certain domains. But that's like the big power of these AI models is how much information they can gather and then synthesize because trying to track even one nation through the course of a couple hundred years is so hard with all the different things that can happen and all the different perspectives, all the different primary sources that happen. So it's really interesting to think about like not only creating new discoveries like this one or being able to pull out new information, but also just being able to like understand the course of how human history has evolved uh, i think will be really interesting as ai comes into play with more of the softer sciences and more of like the history and areas like that right supporting the geologists supporting the archaeologists and, and just seeing i know there's a lot of groundbreaking stuff on the medical side of things but like going back into the history and understanding more of where we came from and, and our ancestors too i think is so fascinating i love to see it yeah and uh that that reminds me of like you know now that we've got this kind of powerful image recognition um from that perspective like we've got multimodal yeah capabilities with chat gpt now where which they just released not too long ago and i'm always surprised to hear that people have not played around with that yet i do think the usage of the platform is going down so it doesn't have as much hype around it as it used to but that was a really fascinating release um, around the multimodal capabilities of ChatGPT. And I actually saw some really, really cool video footage that was posted by Allie Miller um, of a transcription of a video. I think I posted in our Slack channel. Um, but it was basically like you could record a video of you saying something and then it could translate both your mouth movements yes. and your words and the sound to a different language, which I just thought was so cool. <laughs> it was very, very good. Like yeah. very good. Yeah. The demo was a guy on his porch. I think the requirements were you need to talk for a minute straight, just saying whatever you want. And then it was uncanny to see just a translated version and it looked like him speaking, like not perfect, of course, but if you weren't looking for it, I think you could easily be fooled that that was him speaking that language pretty live. like Totally, which is separate from the multimodal uh, chat GPT functionality that I was talking about before. I think I blended those two together in one thought, but I just thought it was really neat that we're starting to get much better at that. Um, and like the example that chat GPT used was taking a picture of your bike and saying, hey, help me understand how to lower the bike or uh, the bike seat on my bike and ChatGPT was able to say like, see this bracket right here, like you wanna loosen that. And again, that's a demo. I haven't yeah. really played around with that too much myself to see what the performance looks like. Um, but it it is really cool and really promising because even at a demo level, you can make improvements over time um, to the performance of that. 
And I just saw a screenshot shared on LinkedIn of this. I don't want to perpetuate fake news, but uh, it was a Where's Waldo? They put in the Where's Waldo picture and they said, describe to me where Waldo is. And it found him and then described exactly like triangulated him among multiple people. So again, I didn't do that myself, but I was like, that's like the Turing test, but the Waldo test for multimodal is like, one, can you find him? And then two, can you describe to me that I can understand where he is in this sea of zany characters, you know? Well, Alan Turing, we're not going to call it the Waldo test. I know, Brandon, you're trying to learn Spanish. Uh, if you didn't do your learning in person, you'd kind of cheat with the app that Reagan was talking about, where you just record yourself saying the assignment in English and just let it auto-convert and then submit that. Yeah, deep fake your Spanish homework. How how else are Spanish teachers going to be able to test you now if you could deep fake yourself speaking a foreign language? Well, just so- have to like talk to you live, I guess. Or maybe yeah. you'll look at a, a real-time AI one that you can fake it with, you know? <laughs> the deep fake advancements just over the past couple months is really what's blowing my mind. Like, Reagan, you shared one where it's like Meta has like Kendall Jenner, Billie Eilish, Snoop Dogg, some of the biggest kind of celebrities allowing their likeness to be used by basically anybody in a very, very realistic kind of look, feel to it. It literally, in the demos I've seen, it looks like Kendall's recording a selfie video and it's just like one of the other ones that she's put out there in the past too. So I think so. I think those celebrities um, gave permission for Meta to use their likeness to create videos as a kind of like companion or assistant or whatever that you can interface with as an end user, which is getting into, I would love to understand the details of those contracts. Like it's just getting into this really, really fascinating space around data ownership, data privacy, because your likeness is your data, right? So like providing that to a company to use, I mean, like how could that go wrong? You know, probably in a lot of ways. Well, related to that, think of just the fraud that could happen related to getting a video from the CEO in your company or your direct manager that looks realistic. And now you're just essentially fooling the user into being that bad actor inside of the organization. Yeah, we did talk about this during our um, security training. We talked about the three dimensions of security and AI, and that's one of them, which is preparing your employees for people to have, you know, to, to expect better social engineering to happen yeah. through these phishing attempts with these deep fakes, because the phishing attempts are getting more and more realistic. Mm-hmm. It used to be like, oh yeah, it's a phishing email report. You know, like now we're getting into this territory where it is super realistic because you can use generative to make it very, very, very similar depending on how much data you have. I was actually listening to, shout out to John Crone, Super Data Science Podcast. Um, he had a really good episode with, uh, somebody from, uh, I'm going to blank on the name now, but it was a security company. Um, uh, if I think of it, I'll, I'll name it. Um, but anyway, they were talking about how they're going to protect the systems against some of these attempts. And one of the things that the guest pointed out, it was a very recent episode. So take a look at it. You'll find it pretty quickly if you go to his website, but, um, the guest basically pointed out the fact that a company has something that these threat actors don't, as long as they secure it, which is what normal looks like inside of the company. Mm-hmm. So as long as the company can, you know, retain that information and yeah. leverage that information to find anomalies, because they have it and the threat actors th- theoretically don't, right? So as they're trying to fish associates, these tools can start to detect 
what is happening that deviates from normal, which the threat actors don't have access to what normal looks like. So it would be like going into a bank if you were trying to like social engineer your way behind the counter and you had no intel on what the typical protocols were that the bank tellers did every day. And so somebody would be able to spot you immediately because you would look like you don't know what you're doing. And so a lot of times threat actors will do recon on what normal looks like so that they can fit into the mold and the patterns of normal. And so I think that's something like all the metadata around a lot of these activities is one way they can start to detect that something is an anomaly or comparing it against what is seen as normal within the company. So I just thought that was pretty fascinating because they dive pretty deep on leveraging AI to be able to find things like that and nuances that stick out that aren't normal. And so that is one of the dimensions that we look at from a security perspective. Jason from Mantium, who's going to be on here in a little bit, is going to talk about the second piece, which is we're going to build AI systems internally and we need to we need to make sure that we secure those that architecture well so that threat actors can't infiltrate the things that we built and then um the third i just mentioned as well which is leveraging ai for security so using tools that include ai to help secure your company um which i don't talk a ton about because uh, we just don't run into that a lot there's a lot of vendors out there that are touching on that and so i think the other two are usually areas that we deep dive into well, based on your prior example, okay, what does normal look like in a company if the CEO is not typically video calling you asking for $200 cash in the Friday night? Like that's something that you should do <laughs> pretty easily. I yeah. Like and what's hard, it, like, that's a really good example of one that we find to be pretty common is the gift yeah. card example. It's like the easiest one to point to. It's like, if they're ever asking you to buy gift cards, it's probably not real, yeah. but they're doing other things to compromise access for systems that could, they could actually hold data ransom and, or, and, or sell it on the dark web. So there's more expensive, profitable, um, techniques or strategies aside from gift cards, although gift cards can be uh, a good approach for some people, I guess. I can't wait to sell my likeness. I, I want to sell it and have people using me as their kind of sidekick in their work day. I, I got to get famous or something though. I feel like that's just looking back at like the social behavior of 15 minutes of fame. Like as soon as somebody gets that fame, then they can just sell their likeness and have folks replicate that in other spaces too. Well, when I was at, I guess I failed to mention I was at the Voice and AI conference in DC too. And I saw Noelle Silver Russell there. And um, she was telling me, I think it was Siri, but the woman whose voice oh. was recorded for Siri, I think made like, I'm going to get this wrong, like $2,000 total. Like it, like she didn't have the contract in place to be able to make money off of her likeness over time as a voice actor. And, you know, it's like a big kind of story about how to, I guess, a cautionary tale for anybody who's thinking about selling their likeness. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I actually know somebody, I know somebody who knows somebody who voiced Alexa and they did all right. And they said, it was funny because they said they have like from all the different countries, they all got them together and they like sat them down and they were like, oh, this is like, all the Alexas and now they always the person that knows them always hears their friend whenever they use it right so it's just kind of funny like how that played out two very different ways uh between Alexa and Siri interesting yeah there were a lot of voice actors at the conference I've never met a voice actor before wow. and they were at the voice and AI conference in DC and I was like whoa <laughs> you know it's just so interesting 
quick side debate on that. Would you guys ever sell your likeness, voice, looks, I don't know, handwriting, like however you mm. communicate, you never would. How about you, Brandon? No. Depends how much money and how old I was. Yeah. But I, I just feel like it's too risky, right? Because like if they could fake you, do like have you doing whatever they want and they could say it's real. Like I don't, I just would never want that. Open that door. That's quite the box, like Pandora's box opened up. It's like, it's only one thing you really have at the end of the day. <laughs> Well, and that's where I wonder too, how much of your likeness has to be out there already on social media? Because you notice, okay, the ones that Meta used, Kendall, Snoop Dogg, they have so much video and image content of themselves out there. It's easy to replicate. But if you're somebody who doesn't have a ton of content out on the internet on what you look like, how you talk, uh, maybe there's a correlation there just around how much data is available to the public versus if it's actually feasible for you, Nick, Brendan, Reagan, whoever. Yeah, I, it also reminds me, I was at the a Chamber of Commerce event last week as well, and it was being hosted at Mills James, which is an audiovisual company. Um, they call, they're, they're in Hilliard, Ohio. They call themselves Hollywood and Hilliard. I actually love it. They have this really cool studio, green screen, things that they can do. And they're being really innovative on this front of like, you know, from the CEO down of like how they're going to leverage AI as a creative company right in video and audio and so they're talking about these like avatars that they can create and they're starting to think about this and it was just really interesting because they were like yeah for some of our high profile you know customers this is an absolute no-go for them and they're starting to like try things out with with some folks on their team and it's just so interesting to hear about again you know, the experimentation process around use cases and feasibility and risk management. These are like the three pillars that people are really focused on. And one thing that was brought up at a talk last week too, just related to the creative outlet of all of these tools is uh, some would argue that it's not, it's, there's never been a better time to be a creator because all of these tools are available to you easily, cheaply, quickly, like to go and write a movie script, to go and do quick video editing, to go and generate a podcast in that way. I kind of want to, you guys got me thinking, I want to experiment with, can we do a fully AI generated podcast episode of AI or die? And would the listeners even? Oh God. Let's get rid of <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting. I was going to say, we're kind of screwing ourselves on the likeness piece by hosting. Putting content out there right now. Yeah. <laughs> there might be a duplicate of our podcast right now going on in another country. Wild. Um, uh, other news, I think one thing that was interesting, just related to data labeling, data management overall, there's these um, massive companies like Appen who are all about providing labeled data to train these massive models. And there's interesting pieces that are getting into, you know, what are the labor impacts of hiring folks in South America, especially to do this labeling of data? And at, at what point does the payment for each of these small gigs of labeling data kind of reach a tipping point where it maybe makes sense for them to unionize or at least think about their work in that way too? I just, I never really considered kind of the other side of all of the millions of people it takes kind of working in this gig economy to label data, to support these large farms of databases, to inherently train the models that are needed too. So just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that, because I think it has such interesting labor implications, obviously um, regulation too, if we're talking about data getting passed overseas for folks to label it as well. Just, yeah, any thoughts on that? I think it's always interesting when you're comparing like, because I know that one references some, you know, dollar figures. It's just like, is that better work than the alternatives that are available to them too? You know, is it like a side kind of thing? But um, I do think there'll be more kind of accountability similar to what we saw with manufacturing of like, when you take things offshore, like how are you, compensating them fairly, making sure that it is like 
there's more brand in that, especially in the physical product world and manufacturing. I'm sure there'll be similar ramifications on the digital side as well. Um, similar to what we see all with like a lot of IT outsourcing, like how are right. people being treated and paid out like when you do that kind of motion. And is there a relation to like a bit of an argument towards the creation of synthetic data because of this? So instead of hiring humans to go and pour through data and make sure that it's quality, is there an argument there where synthetic data would inherently help from a human rights standpoint where it's involving less humans in the loop in that way? That's definitely a big trend. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm seeing a lot more marketplaces for data. Um, last year when I went to the Fortune AI event, I met Daniela, um, who's the CEO of a defined AI, and her whole mission is to create a data marketplace um, of ethical data for AI, which I think is pretty admirable, um, like a trusted kind of ethical data sources for people to leverage, because data is going to be the differentiator for a lot of these organizations. Yeah. And figuring out like if they can't have, you know, if they don't have full complete data in their in their company. What other external data sources can they leverage? What sort of synthetic data can they start to generate? Nick, you and I talked about synthetic data a little bit at that security workshop. Um, Yeah, there's lots of options here. Some people are even leveraging generative to label data itself. Um, So will the labeling of data be automated at some point? And how do we, you know, assess performance of that? Um, And I talk about this a lot. We, you know, we've always captured data. And so does... um, uh, Maya at, at Savvy AI, she talks about this a ton. We've always cap- captured data for operational use. Yeah. We've not captured it for causal purposes. So we need causal data to train computers. We need outputs that are good and outputs that are bad. And we need to be able to train computers off of the signal that alludes to those outputs. And if we don't have that causal data, it's really hard to get the performance that we're looking for and the accuracy that we're looking for and the comprehensiveness that we're looking for. So a lot of times companies end up having to scope down their use cases a ton because just because of the data that they have available. Um, and one of the exercises that we did last week was talking about how to scope things down in terms of feasibility and also risk management. Um, but this is a big problem, the labeled data piece is hard. And I think most people are deviating away from supervised fine tuning because they don't have the data sets uh, that they need to actually do this appropriately. Because you have to train these models on specific tasks and you need data and you need outcomes in order to do that. And so labeled data is becoming a rich source of information and differentiators for performance, which I think is why we see such a big difference in like outcome and performance of these solutions. Like you see something on the internet and you're like, oh my God, I could do that. But what you don't have access to is the data that that organization had access to to build that thing. So I think that's what, that's a misconception is like, wow, it looks super promising on the surface. But if you peel that back on how you actually make it happen, it's usually down to the data. Oh, for sure. I was talking to somebody last week who said their company had 450 AI use cases that were like teed up, but they're still working on like getting those into production. That's the whole top of funnel where it's like, yeah, use cases, you can have 450 of them, but like, do you have the data, the feasibility, the business impact that you've fleshed out to actually make these happen? Yeah. And just to keep riffing off that concept as well, we talk a lot about you need data foundations around quality, literacy, like a lot of the data stuff is necessary in order to do the AI stuff. And I think that data literacy piece in particular is really important because 
they need to be able to describe the target variable, the outcome, the output, the label, and they need to be able to like talk about that in a data way with a data scientist to make sure there's enough signal, to make sure there's enough, like um, given all your features, there's enough uh, evidence there, right? For the machine learning model to work off, to learn off of, to see that outcome, to be able to actually develop. And that requires business stakeholders who understand not only what phenomenon they're trying to create a machine learning model around, but also like, does that data even exist? <laughs> you know, um, the classic example I go to is like, we did preventative maintenance, preventive maintenance on like train doors and you needed to see enough failures in the data to be able to build a model off of it. You need to have enough data of the features during those failures to create a model off of it. And that can be hard. And that's where you need stakeholders who are data literate enough to understand where the data is at. Do they have enough of it? How does that look? One of the biggest questions. Yeah, like imagine a scenario in which every time there was a failure, it failed to capture the features also. So you have a very imbalanced data set and it just so happened that that's some of the issue, the incomplete quality issues that you have with your data set. Yeah, the imbalance problem is a huge, huge problem for a lot of folks. You need to have that historical reference point. For sure. And knowing how much is enough data that we need. And that's a question I get so often is how do we know when we have enough to make an accurate model? I can't wait back to your point, Reagan, around like the data marketplace. I can't wait till there's like ethically certified data, environmentally friendly data. Oh, I don't know, like organic data, like all of the different labels that we're putting on a lot of the things that we're buying today, but related to data as an asset in that way too. I think it'd be funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what defined is that's what defined is work is working on. That's what they're trying to do. And they're getting some really good traction too, which is great. Yeah. Cage-free data, free range data. I'd love to see it. <laughs> gluten-free data. Gluten-free data. If that data had a face, I don't want to, you know, I don't want any part of it, right? <laughs> Only <laughs> vegan data only here. Only vegan data. Yeah, yeah it doesn't have feelings. Right. <laughs> Another side topic that you mentioned, Reagan, was LLM mesh. Just want to take a couple minutes to go through that and just what you're reading about it today. Yeah, so Dataiku announced at their Dataiku Summit, the Everyday AI uh, Summit in New York, they announced their LLM mesh, which is basically a way for them to, uh, for, for enterprise organizations, their customers to have to have this sort of like foundation or backbone for generative AI apps. So they're kind of modularizing the ecosystem and integrating accordingly to make sure that you have like everything you need end to end to, to generate these uh, generative AI apps. So they have hosted um, LLM API services with Snowflake, OpenAI, Anthropic, Cohere, Mosaic ML all of your common ones. Yeah. You can self-host private LLMs from Hugging Face, so the open source models. Um, they've integrated with uh, vector stores as well, so Pinecone. Um, and then they have, they also announced their partnership with NVIDIA for accelerated compute, which is really interesting. So they're kind of like creating this ecosystem of LLMs to generate applications on top of it to make it easy. Um, so their whole thing is, you know, security cost, um, choices from a dependency perspective. And I, I just think that that's kind of what people are thinking about anyway. And so they basically took all of that and put that into their platform. And so just something for everyone to keep an eye on. And I'd love to hear if people have tried it out. I have not been able to play around with it, but they've got a bunch of use cases that they posted on their website. Um, but if people have tried it out, like, let us know. I'd love to hear yeah. what that looks like. Is it open for anybody to go and try or do you have to go through like a sales process? With I them? think you have to have a license. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and we've got uh, some customers with Dataiku licenses. It's just, they're not actively building 
you know, LLM applications. <laughs> okay. So our guest for today, we are very excited to have Jason Montgomery. Jason's an entrepreneur with almost 30 years of experience in software, cybersecurity, and overall just engineering in the data space as well. Um, he co-founded and served as CTO at the two Ohio startups, uh, one of them being Nexosis, acquired by Data Robot in 2018, and the other being Mantium, where he's currently at, which is all about generative AI security. So prior to Mantium, his career was in enterprise security and product security, um, also at Data Robot and some other government agencies too. We're excited because we have done a joint playbook with Jason and team where we're really addressing the security concerns related to AI. So that should be coming out soon. And we hope folks really get their hands on it and start reusing it a lot too more. Hey, Jason, how are you? Good to see you. Doing well. How are y'all doing? Good, good. Thanks for joining our episode nine of the podcast. I actually just went through and did a whole intro on you and Mantium as well. Um, what's, oh, cool. going on? what's new with you? Where are you calling in from today? Uh, Columbus, Ohio. Well, Westerville, technically, but outside of Columbus. Cool. So would you mind just for listeners at home, tell us about you know your role at Mantium today and what you've been building? Yeah. So I'm the co-founder and CTO of Mantium. Um, I think we've been around almost three years now, um, and we've been in the generative AI space since the early days. Um, before that, you know, it's we've did a lot of machine learning at, at the previous two companies I was at, and then um, <clears throat> saw generative AI taking off and really wanted to get on the natural language sort of realm. Um, it seemed a lot more practical to a lot more people than traditional ML models did. Um, you know, if, and as I think we see with even our parents and, you know, a lot of people are talking about it um, who normally wouldn't talk about AI or, or anything ML related. So we got in three years and we've been basically uh, quickly keeping pace and pivoting with the market as, as you know, OpenAI and, and some of the other uh, leaders in the space have been sort of um, changing their, their technologies. We started out early days with really around prompt and prompt management and versioning and, and sort of building um, workflows on top of that and then replatformed on sort of this more chat um, experience, securely chatting with your data is, is the kind of the thing we're focused on now and really building in sort of the, uh, with our rich cybersecurity background, as well as our AI experience, building in a, a robust set of security controls around the, the generative AI that we've been building so that you can chat with your data securely. And I understand you have a pretty robust cybersecurity background yourself in your career. Would you just mind touching on just some of the things that you worked on prior to Mantium? Sure. Yeah. I think before, um, before Mantium at Data Robot, I was the uh, over product security and uh, enterprise security there. So focused on secure coding in particular and secure features, secure cloud deployments, um, how the system gets built sort of architecturally and at a technical level um, and making sure the right security controls were in place there. Um, before that, you know, similar at Nexosis with, with the platform building and even at Mantium. And then before that, I was a researcher at Vericode doing binary static analysis. So we would research frameworks um, in different languages. We would find vulnerabilities um, that could express themselves in a language. And then we would help the uh, engineering team there get a, a suite of tests that would uh, surface those errors um, in their system as it looked at code and reveals um, where a flaw might be and, and how to fix it. Um, in fact, now they're using generative AI to help you fix those errors too. So yeah, we come nice. full circle, I think. Yeah. You caught a trend really early on. So with Nexosis, you caught the like, you know, pipeline management of ML trend, um, kind of from your software background, understanding that there was there needed to be more rigor around that process, um, yeah. which is why it was, I assume, so appealing to Data Robot. 
Yeah. And then now you've got this trend of security with generative AI, which is literally the number one conversation that we have with all of our enterprise customers. In fact, I was just on a call today with one of our customers talking about security, acceptable use policies, things like that. And you know, their initial assumption is that um, we can't use any solution, including enterprise open AI, all of our data, you know, it's going to get used no matter what. So can you help people, maybe some of the listeners understand the parameters of security from a generative AI perspective, just to give people an understanding, like, are these enterprise solutions good enough? Do they need something more? You know, what does that stack look like and why, how, how should they think about it? Yeah, I think with, um, with that, I think using cloud services is not a foreign or uh, thing. Most people have cloud deployments. They run sensitive data in their cloud environments, and they've been able to um, come up with a security model that works for that organization. And I think once they realize you can, um, there are models available in your cloud accounts that are sort of obey your tenant requirements that you've already set up in, the, in your organization. Um, they can use those, um, you know, assuming they've checked all the compliance boxes. And it's really just usually a, a discussion with the security teams, compliance teams, risk management teams. Um, and your engineers to sort of make sure you've you've come up with a solution that helps. I think the one thing that's a little different about generative AI that gives people anxiety is that it could use all of your data. Whereas usually a system we stand up is you know it's just this data, or we can we can just do a narrow scope. Um, and so I think there's an overwhelming sense of like oh my god everything could go through this system. Um, and, and I think in that, those cases, it's sort of like biting off those bite-sized pieces of things that aren't incredibly risky. You can get incredible value without having to ship all your data to, to a third-party provider. Um, the other option is to host your own model, but I think a lot of organizations are finding that it's incredibly expensive to, to spin up these, the, the amount of memory and GPU you need to, to host these, and you're competing with um, you know, buying tech or procuring tech from with all the other companies out there. Sometimes it's easier to leverage someone who's already has the available um, bandwidth to do it. Oh, for sure. The classic build versus buy kind of conundrum, especially yeah. with AI deployments here too. Yeah. And I think with the build versus buy, one of the other things I think people think is, well, if it's just an API, we can call it. And I think there's um, a lot of these um, generative AI models have um, assume a lot of security controls up front um, that need to be in place, whether it's guardrails or some sort of, you know, input validation, whether it's audit logs, accessing who's accessing what data when, um, did, does something need redacted? Did we find sensitive data in there? Um, things like that. And when you look at, start to look at all of the, the components you need to build um, a generative AI system, it, it actually is a pretty big thing to build. And I think trying to find a, um, a reasonable solution that can get the, the job done without you know taking the next year of a 15 person team to build, which a lot of companies, that's not what they do. That's not their forte. Um, um, you know, It's gonna be easier to probably buy it in many cases, uh, but they've got to get through that security hurdle. Yeah, and that's where I want to bring up, because I was reading through your white paper earlier today, securing next generation AI deployments. Um, Want to touch on a couple of the topics in there, because I think we already started to get into it. But first, just for listeners, how think can they get their hands on this white paper and kind of what led to you creating this white paper in the first place? Um, I think part of it was out of the need to illustrate um, that security story. I think we started hearing about it a lot and a lot of the frameworks and a lot of the development platforms and a lot of the the items released into the open source community, at least from a security perspective, were severely lacking. Um, they they lack normal secure hygiene and code, how they store secrets. 
um, how they handle OAuth um, flows and things like that. And, um, so it was pretty concerning to, to see some of that. And then it's like, well, people are like, well, you're competing with this framework. And it's like, well, actually not. Um, you know, you still have to build all the things. You still have to put all the security controls in. You still have to meet all the compliance boxes. Um, and uh, in, in, from our past experience, that's not a trivial thing to build. And we've we've had a lot of experience building it and thought that was kind of the sweet spot where our AI background and our cybersecurity backgrounds came together. Yeah, because you touch on like the risk landscape for LLMs. You list out a handful, but I'm curious which ones you find the most impactful or the most interesting that maybe companies are struggling with today or that you would prioritize for folks? Yeah, I think the big one I think most companies are worried about is that copy-paste problem where <laughs> people are just putting in the context window of the chat anything. And that's where you you don't have any control. You don't have any visibility, especially if they're going out to a third-party website and they're chatting with their data, You unless they block that completely. Um, and then, then, then they're just going to do it on their phone or they're going to do it on their personal computer. Um, and so they'll find a, a way if, if you're promising people, you know, they'll be 30 to 70% more productive and then you don't let them have access to that capability. You're, you're going to get some tension in your organizations about that. So, yeah. um, that's the big one. And so having, having the data hooked up and connected and a pipeline that you can control and audit and monitor and add the proper level of access controls to make sure the right people have access to the right data at the right time. Um, I think you can tell a, a little better story about that um, as well from a security perspective. Yeah, I wanna bring up an example I've heard you all talk about a lot, which is this idea that, you know, I, I know that you bring up RAG as a technique, which to explain for folks is retrieval augmented generation, which is a somewhat more secure approach than some of the other approaches of leveraging or can be if you do it right. Um, it gives you maybe a little bit more flexibility and, and removes the need to do uh, large like fine tuning of these models and things like that. So really being able to vectorize knowledge bases. And so one of the really interesting uh, examples that you all bring up, which I think is fascinating um, for folks listening, is this idea where you've got like, let's say you're using Coda or Notion or SharePoint and you, all of your documents are being consumed into a vector database and then you query that um, or do like se semantic search on that and then generate outputs from that. Anybody could, you know, if it doesn't have the right access controls around that data, then anybody interfacing with that information can gather or gain information that they shouldn't have access to to begin with. For example, I think you guys use like the PIP, if you had a PIP for someone, like a performance and right. improvement plan, like nobody should be able to access that except for a few people at the company. And if you just throw everything into a vector database, you're going to run into some challenges. And I love that example because it's really understandable. Um, is this still one of the biggest challenges that you see is like this really this access control around information even internally? Yeah, I think along with uh, whether it's, you know, whether you need semantic search or just retrieval of a record in a database somewhere, because sometimes you semantic search is not what you need. Sometimes you just need to fetch a row out of a database that, but if that's not for that user or if, or if they're able to just go through a model and, and retrieve all the information, um, adding all that 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 fine-grained and coarse-grained access control layer is uh, complicated. And that's that's what we've spent some time building out so that we could actually have more um, coarse and fine-grained control over those so that only people have access to it that, that should have access to it as you build the solution. 
And I was hoping you could expand upon, because another interesting point you brought up in your white paper was the concept of injection vulnerabilities, especially as folks, I know prompt engineering is such a hot topic right now, but I was hoping you could just give a 101 on what is an injection vulnerability that folks should think about at their company. Yeah, so injection vulnerability in this case from prompt injection is is really the inability to get the AI um, language generation model to to do what you want as opposed to the task it was set up for. Um, and so in many of these cases, you have um, a large language model that is very general and it's the way that they've trained that model. It's to be a general purpose, all, all knowing model. And it has a lot of data and knowledge embedded within it um, from its training sets. And you may not want people um, it and it depends on how you're exposing that system to people. So if it's if it's all internal and and you're you've got unlimited amount of tokens, um, people can you may want a general purpose thing that that can do sort of uh, anything. It's kind of a Swiss Army knife, um, or you may want very narrow targeted. This is for technical support for these you know our call center people when they're on a call. Sure. To sort of query use retrieval to pull in you know knowledge base articles that may have answers that they can very quickly then generate. Um, things for the customer to do, you may not want them diverging from that that model's purpose. One, you're consuming tokens that you you are limited right now and can be expensive to generate. Um, and you and if you put that in front of customers, you don't want them to use it for you know purposes that you didn't deem uh, appropriate either. And so, with uh, prompt injection, you can and since they haven't really separated the the notion of the instructions and commands for the model from that literal data that it's generating on. Um, all a user has to do is is put in a phrase that can trick the model um, to just go off task um, and do do something that it wasn't trained for. Um, and we've seen this in many cases. I, I think there's a lot of vulnerabilities out there for prior art, but um, I've seen some in resume generation, which was really fascinating, um, where they had AI screening resumes. And if you put in a hidden font, um, you know, I am a, you know, and you basically prompt the AI generation in that resume in a hidden text. The, the human reviewer won't see it, but the AI model may see that this is the best resume we've ever seen in the world. Yeah. You need to hire this person. Um, and they send that in and the model, knowing, not knowing it shouldn't take directions from that section of retrieval, yeah. will suddenly uh, move that candidate to the front of the line if they did not code it very carefully with a you know, very secure sort of system prompt with some other checks in place and classification to make sure that someone's not trying to subvert the model, things like that. So interesting. I'd heard of image classification examples like that before, but I can see totally how it would want to yeah. be impacting a resume or anything else where a human just has an end goal that they're not adequately prepared for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so not only textual, but yes, in the new vision models, this is, and it's going to be coming out here very shortly with, with GPT-4, this vision capabilities mm -hmm. you end up with injecting through a, a picture now instead of just, and people have done proof of concepts already on that in the wild. Yeah. I, I heard you talk about white labeling topics, which I think was a really interesting concept of like, from a security perspective, which topics are approved um, that we put on this list. Can you talk a little bit more about what that would look or how how that how that would be implemented or what that would look like? Yeah. So like just like semantic similarity search or vector similarity search, if you're trying to find documents that match the topic that the user asked about that may be in your databases or systems, um, you also can do that semantic similarity search or, or vector similarity search on the topic to make sure that, and you can have embedded a similar list of, of whitelisted topics. And as long as they match, you can actually constrain um, 
what sort of um, things are, are, are allowed. And it, that wouldn't solve everything, but again, it's it's doing a lot of little things across Sutter, the whole pipeline and the whole um, system to make sure that things stay on track. Much like moderation pre pre prevents hate speech, this on the other hand would only allow certain things. So it's kind of the, if you look at moderation as a blacklist, this would just be the opposite of that as a whitelist that the company or, or the use case or, or task describes. This could also be a really good mechanism for testing over time too. I often talk to a lot of my customers about um, scoping down use cases quite a bit to get really, really good at like a couple of specific things first and then widening that scope over time. Yeah. Um, and this could be a really good way for them to do that. Like think about what we want to include. Maybe it's not all of our customer service use cases ever, but it's only for this specific topic inside of our customer service use case. Right. Yeah, because you also touch on scalability and infrastructure pains. And I think that helps to address that as well. Instead of trying to do this massive use case or pick the highest value ones, you have to look at a feasibility standpoint too. What are some of the common like scalability issues that you see companies running into in terms of trying to just up their security of AI models? Yeah, I think in, a, in many cases, it is getting enough compute. <laughs> and so if you want to open it up to your entire organization and, you know, you've maybe you're using Azure's instances of, of uh, GPT-3.5 or 4, um, or you're using BARD or, or Claude or something like that, they typically are going to charge per token. And then sometimes you have limits because one, budgetary concerns. And um, if if you let a, a bad actor in there, or if there's someone who wants to do sort of a resource exhaustion where they consume all your tokens, or if you just don't really constrain the task, you end up with people just generating lots of you know things that aren't really appropriate for that task and that that compute use. And so you want to kind of make sure that they stay within those um, those limits, I guess. And so not only limiting, you know, people. They may have a context window of 4K and a very expensive model, for example. Um, so something around 4,000 tokens that you could put in. Um, you may only want to let them put in 100 at most. Um, so that that constraints. It also makes injection harder because they can't try and confuse and complete the model with a ton of different instructions. Um, and it limits the amount of tokens. And then you can sort of constrain what goes um, to the actual um, generative endpoint before it starts generating content. And you can also use things like in your prompts, uh, language that constrains the output to like be very concise in 10 words or less or in a bullet point list of five items. Like, cause ChatGPT4, uh, GPT4 in particular wants to be very verbose. And I think a lot of, like, I usually prefer it to be a little less. And so, and that also saves on uh, a lot of that system token consumption, which, um, given enough users and enough and not enough limits as to what they could do, they'll run out of uh, or or you could drive up a pretty expensive bill pretty quickly um, for that company. And, that, and it may not even be for the task that it was set out to do. I would love to talk about the successive agency um, idea or giving like these models too much access to too many things. I know you had a couple of really good examples. On that, I think that was also very interesting. I often tell people to think about these systems as you would people. So what does this thing get access to? What's it allowed to do? What's it allowed to action off of? Do you mind diving into maybe some examples of permissions that these models have been granted in the past that have gone wrong and how to prevent that from an architectural perspective in the future? Yeah, and this this really comes down to thinking about, um, and I, I, I say the same exact thing. It's like treat the threat model around the AI, generative AI system, very much like a user of your system. 
Um, it can do things and be prompted to do things that maybe you didn't expect. And just like any user that uses our systems, part of that security story is making sure it's very, very, um, you know, understands exactly what it can do. And then on top of that, what it has access to. So if you gave it access to, if you built some functions or tools that can call APIs and those APIs can impact some business outcome or they can impact um, some other system, you can actually have down level um, abuses of those systems and access to those systems. And that could lead to things like data breaches where you could trick it to retrieve uh, way more information than it should. Um, I think there's- I'm Giving there's, it access to GitHub. Uh, I think you brought oh, that yeah, one yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So in that one example I, I, I've seen, they, um, and this is with ChatGPT's plugin architecture. Those are effectively, excessive agency in some cases, because one of those plugins may use your auth token that has access to your entire GitHub account organizationally or personally or both. And so if you can have, um, if you can prompt one um, plugin to generate something that it shouldn't, or you can embed, so if it fetches a web page, for example, that web page may have an injected prompt. And if that, then the next plugin has access to GitHub, um, you can use it to actually, um, and you've gave it full access to all the GitHub APIs, which would be a bad security model. Yeah. Um, it could create repos. It could delete repos. It could create MR code MRs, totally transparent to the user um, because it's all sort of getting traded between context windows behind the scenes in the system. And so you end up, if you chain um, agents together and they each have specific tasks and you give one of them too much agency, it can um, effectively do way more than maybe you expected. So you really have to limit, like it should be running in the context of the user who signed in. But if that user is has access to everything, maybe it only should talk to one API, not the entire suite of APIs. Um, and so that's where- Yeah, I think you see it's so interesting. And do, you, do most people run into these types of challenges when they're they're building their own ecosystem? So I guess- for, for a lot of folks, they get kind of confused. Like if I grab an open source foundation model and I use RAG or I fine tune it, or I'm using OpenAI's API, like do, do these concepts apply to all three of those scenarios? Yeah, they do. I think, um, it, and it depends. It's, if you don't give them any, and a lot of people aren't to the stage where they're adding tools yet. I think, you know, some of the more leading systems and platforms do that. And so as you want to sort of simplify people's jobs, like uh, we're working on a, an integration now that can work with, with GitHub and GitLab. And so you can create epics and, and issues and, and things like that. And that's useful, but it should be operating under the user who's calling it um, so that those things show up as that user. If you put a system account back there, and it has unfettered, unfettered access to the back end, you're going to run into problems. So I think for systems that are doing um, agents and tools, those sorts of technologies, um, you can run into those problems. Plus, if the tool is not very well secured, and we've seen uh, vulnerabilities in like um, AutoGPT where yeah. it, they, they exposed a calculator tool to the app. The calculator tool was just using an eval function in Python. Um, which then people could effectively import new libraries, run arbitrary code, and basically do a, a system breakout um, of that system. And it, it um, you know, you, all security is lost at that point. They basically fully compromised your your agent runners at that point, um, or your your backend system that that tool is running on. 
that leads to a question I want to ask you, because this is kind of our Halloween episode as well. I wanted to hear what you think nice. is one of the scariest or spookiest kind of vulnerabilities in AI that you've seen or read about in your work. <laughs> um, there's a couple. I think the excessive, anything along the lines of excessive agency, I think, and, and my background's heavily in application security. So this is sort of near and dear to me anyway. But um, just those, those second tier vulnerabilities that are maybe in your tool, and then the attacker now has access to a generative model that's inherent knowledge, knows systems and protocols and formats. And it can act like you can actually use it to help you develop a playbook to attack a system given particular protocols that you aren't that familiar with. It'll even show you what commands to run and it'll even run them for you. Um, and so if you find uh, an issue down level in the, um, in one of the tools, you can actually, and, and, and the AI is just open, you can actually have a conversation for it to help you exploit that system on your behalf without you even having to write code. Much like it can augment a developer, um, we found it's very, uh, it's really good at command line tools and networks and understanding all those things because it's been fine-tuned on a broad range of technical data as well as um, you know human language in general. And so, that that becomes really scary. Um, I think now the attacker has a is using your resources to assist them, right? To attack your systems. Yeah, it's like the human is kind of like a zombie to the AI in that way. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It kind um, of turns. Yeah, it yeah I think. I think um, what's so interesting is that there's a lot of I talk about risk management a lot. So you're you're highlighting like kind of worst case scenarios here sure. or like vulnerabilities for these systems. And when we start to think about it, like we I just read a research paper where they're starting to leverage these language models in addition to all the sensor data that's happening in, in uh, autonomous vehicles. So they're yeah. thinking about like the risk profile of the use case where they're using language models to add more context to what they're consuming from a vision perspective. Like, do we think this person's going to cross the street or not? Well, we don't have to have a ton of examples of that. We can just actually leverage language models to say like, does it seem like this person's about to cross the street, you know, and add more context to the vehicle. And when those things can get, um, you know, when there's security vulnerabilities around those types of use cases, when it starts getting really scary and can go off the rails very quickly. So before we conclude, I just wanted to mention um, a, a great diagram that talks about the LLM security stack that's in your white paper. So people should definitely check it out um, at, on the Mantium website. Um, so there's the inside core, which is model parameters, then the middle layers, which is like system prompt with prompt engineering, input output validation, topic classification, guardrails, moderation checks, fine-grained access control, retrieval augmented generation, human in the loop, LLM semantic caching. And then the outer layer, which is authentication, authorization, rate limits, token count limits, coarse-grained access controls. So just like to mention a couple of the topics that will be mentioned in the white paper, that's what's in there. Um, so I think it's a fairly comprehensive uh, list of at least the most comprehensive list from a security perspective that I've come across. That's so a great resource for folks. Okay. Before we conclude, um, anything you want to mention about chirps, which I know was um, put out on GitHub not too long ago. Yeah. So I think to as we built this system, it's in all this stuff is evolving very quickly and, and these new architectures are emerging and the new vulnerabilities are being um, discovered and and um, shared. I think we felt like it was uh, appropriate to to kind of not only as we built a system to try to help pre prevent these issues, we also built uh, an open source tool that the communities can use and build and contribute to help find those vulnerabilities. So whether that's 
finding sensitive data or proprietary data that you may have embedded and put in a vector database. Um, we also wanted to be able to scan your large language model um, systems for injection type flaws and, and other sorts of flaws as well. And the really fun thing about those is we do use an adversarial sort of prompt that knows its job is to break the other prompt. And we actually have the AIs go at it in the, uh, in the, uh, in the chirp system. And so it's really to um, help you feel good about what you've built um, or identify flaws that you, that we need to work on. And we're, we're uh, asking for anyone who's a developer and wants to contribute that they uh, look us up uh, there on that GitHub. And, and also we just got accepted as an OWASP project, which is the open web application security project. So we are an incubator project there as well. And so we're hoping to also leverage awesome. that. That's great. Yeah, definitely head over to the Mantium website. You'll find information about chirps there and you can contribute if you're listening to this. Yeah, Jason, the past 30 minutes has gone by so quickly. Thank you again for joining our podcast episode nine. When I met you at that security event, I begged you to come and join. I really appreciate you coming on as well. So thank you, Jason. Really appreciate your time. Anything else that you'd like to plug in terms of how to get a hold of you or the Mantium website or anything else as resources that folks should check out that you recommend? Yeah, I think they can uh, they can reach out on on uh, through our website if they want to have a conversation with us about anything. So we're open to talking about what our platform does. We're also you know talking uh, happy to talk about um, sort of generative modern generative AI systems and security risks around that too. Wonderful, yeah, folks, go check it out. We'll put his information in the description of wherever we post this podcast as well. But with that, that officially wraps episode nine of AI or Die. For folks, if you want to subscribe or die, you know you can go and check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. And then, of course, learn more at getalineai.com. Episode ten will be coming out soon. We promise we won't wait two months or so for the next episode to come out too. So, thanks everyone for joining, Jason. Thanks again for hopping on, man. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. One.